Good to see you guys. You see it's red on the cross. Do you pay attention? Do you see that those things change color every season? Any guesses why red today? Pentecost. Yeah. Pentecost. What? That's not fair. Uh, I was going to like show you how coordinated that. I didn't plan this, but I'm even wearing like a hue of red today. That wasn't planned. This is the reddest thing I own. When you have red hair, you typically don't roll around wearing red gear. kind of washes you out. Um, uh, it's good to be with you, though. Uh, Pentecost uh, is something to behold. It's something to celebrate. Um, I think I've given, I don't know how many Sunday sermons or talks I've given on Pentecost over the last few decades, and I feel like I still am like only making sense of some of it. Probably because it has to do with the Holy Spirit. Um, but the passage we're going to look at today, you'll see right away, like it's difficult. It's actually exhausting. So many things are happening at Pentecost, and I'll, I'll talk in, in a moment about what Pentecost might mean, um, but this is part of the church's like origin story, in a sense. So, let's pray, and then we're going, I'm going to do something we don't do normally, just so you can be <laughs> praying about this uh, for what happens after I say amen, but we're going to read the entire chapter. Um, and so you can just like, you know, open up and sit back, but it's 47 verses, so it'll probably take about four minutes or so. Um, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we're grateful for your mercy, your love. We thank you, God, that you take initiative with your world, that you reach out to the broken, the rebellious, that you make the first move of reconciliation and restored fellowship. We thank you that you give us this great gift uh, of the church, of a spirit-filled and formed people. Father, we pray that as we take in these, uh, these words, that we would be open that you would open our, you would open us up to them, to these ancient uh, words from presumably Luke, um, the story of how we came to be who we are as the church. We thank you, Father, for Christ our Lord. We thank you that the Holy Spirit and the church has not an extra discussion or a detour away from what we've been thinking about all year, which is the cross and the resurrection. But that what we read here is an outgrowth of what we've been contemplating for some time now. We pray, Father, that we would see, as David says, good things in your instruction, that we would behold um, your truths. We pray this through Christ the Lord. Amen. Okay, Pentecost. Let's begin with uh, George Herbert, uh, 17th century poet. Uh, if you don't know George Herbert, you should get to know him. Pretty easy poetry. Are there poetry readers here? One, two. You two should read George Herbert. The rest of y'all should repent. Um, <laughs> But here, here we go. Such This is from Herbert's poem, Whit Sunday, which is just a very British way of saying Pentecost. Such glorious gifts thou didst bestow that the earth did like heaven appear. And I think I begin with that because you're going to see some of what he's saying in this very long passage. The heaven is, in a sense making an appearance in the old, fallen, rebellious world. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Serene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being, therefore, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to AIDS, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a foot, your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to him, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. How you doing? That's Acts chapter 2. You made it, the whole thing. Well done. As you can see, it's overwhelming. If we were to sit down and have a conversation about everything that we just read, we'd have to have several of them. It would be impossible to walk through all of the uh, quotations and echoes and allusions from different passages and stories and themes from Hebrew Scripture. I mean, this thing is just replete with the story of Israel. It's Pentecost. The pe- Pentecost is one of these three high holy holidays. It comes right out of uh, Moses. We learn in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Torah, that three times a year, at least if you're a male Israelite, you are to appear before the Lord at the place where He chooses to cause His name to dwell. That's another way of saying Jerusalem or to talk about the temple there in Jerusalem. But so the, the Hebrew title for Pentecost, the name of this Chag Shavuot, Chag Shavuot, sorry, no, no hard H there, Chag Shavuot. Shavuot just in, in English would mean sevens, sevens or weeks, seven days of the week times seven. What's seven times seven? Forty-nine. So on the day after the forty-ninth, this is where you get penta, right? Penta, pentagon, pentagram. Five, fifty. Fifty days after the Passover, you're coming right back to Jerusalem for another festival. Fifty days earlier at Passover, Jesus was executed. He was mourned. He was buried and raised from the dead and left all of his believers and followers utterly disoriented. And a few weeks ago, I shared some of the interactions in that period between Passover and now Shavuot or or Pentecost. But they had been kind of waiting for something to pop off. Now, for Christians, when we say Pentecost, we're not thinking of Shavuot. We're not thinking of the festival of the, the weeks. We're thinking of this moment. For the church, Pentecost has come to be defined. When I say Pentecost, you'll even hear Christians say, I'm looking for a Pentecost moment in the church. What they tend to mean is like some kind of revival. They want to see what we saw at this particular Pentecost festival to happen over and over again. But Pentecost has meaning for us precisely because of what happened on this Pentecost 
50 days after Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead. And by this time, ascended to the Father. But the sequence of events is important. This isn't just some kind of left-hand turn because Jesus' followers really wanted something special to happen. This, is, this grows out of what we've been reading, that Jesus would ascend to his Father and deliver God's Holy Spirit to his people who are waiting. Now, who has a good handle on the Holy Spirit or what it means to live by or with or because of or through the Holy Spirit? Any, anyone want to come up and explain what that looks like? <laughs> and it's especially difficult for us Bible folk, because we want to see in Scripture what it means. And the Scriptures don't seem to talk a great deal with a lot of clarity about what it might mean to live in the Holy Spirit. I would suggest our Scriptures do, but they do it in a way that really forces us to pay attention. They say of us, I don't know if you know this, But those on the outside of the churches of Christ or restoration movement churches, they say we have a holy trinity, which is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's what they say about us. And why do they say that? That's mean. We believe in the Holy Spirit too. (laughs) But see, we... We, we got a good handle on the Bible. The Holy Spirit is a little tougher for us. It pushes us far outside what we can test and approve and give evidence for. And so for that reason, we don't think of ourselves necessarily as Trinitarian, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In practice, our view of God tends to be more Binitarian, that is, Father and Son. You think about it. How often do you pay much attention to the reality that this community is filled to the measure and formed by the Holy Spirit? It doesn't occur to us all that much. We spend a lot of our attention thinking about the Father and the Son. I'm not like rebuking us. I'm one of the teachers in this thing. But what I'm saying is, I think it's because some of this is hard for us to get our head around. And it's open to all kinds of ridiculous misunderstandings. And so sometimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, what can come to mind is like a private spirituality that makes my relationship with God more or deeper or more exciting. And that to live in the Holy Spirit is really about me feeling closer to God or having greater access. It's like kind of, but not first and foremost. What we see here is what it looks like to be the people of the Holy Spirit. But what's happening here is flowing directly out of Jesus' ascension. And Peter's trying to, as it said in chapter 1, Jesus told them they shall be witnesses of His. He's trying to witness and testify what you're seeing here. Yeah, like this has everything to do with that. 50 days ago, at Passover. This is part of that story. And this whole story about Jesus isn't some left-hand turn within the narrative of God's people or the story of the Bible as if the Jews failed so God decided to start Christianity. That's not the idea. And Peter's working really hard through all of the very complicated and sophisticated quotations of Hebrew Bible. Did you see those and get kind of lost? Like Joel and David and the Psalms. Like, what is he doing? He's trying to make the case that what you're seeing comes from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is actually the climax of our story as God's people. The story that y'all are familiar with. That story that drove you into Jerusalem for Shavuot. 
That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's ancient purposes for his people. This isn't a left-hand turn. But so we read. Let me see if I can go all the way back. It's like 30 slides. Uh, Let's see. There we go. When Pentecost arrived, they're all together. And now imagine you're, you're waiting because Jesus told you power is coming for you. And you're waiting. I don't know. Maybe it's after dinner. And all of a sudden, and the text is very elusive here. Luke is being very like Heisman trophy style, like cautious about how he describes what's going on. It was like the sound of wind and it was like fire. Well, as it turns out, they did this most times when God appeared. In Take, for, ex, for example, Exodus chapter 24, the 70 elders and Moses and Joshua will go up Mount Sinai where God is said to be dwelling at the top of the mountain. And they look up and they see God. Very few times before Jesus Christ do people see God. But what do they see? And he says it's like glass, like the sky and like sapphire. It's like and as if and it's very hard to pin down. They look up and they see big huge feet resting on like a glass tile work. See, this is all language, wind, and fire, and it's as if, and it's like. This is all language used to describe what it happens when God makes an appearance. The technical term is theophany, or God appearance. When God comes, what you really need to describe what's going on is a weatherman, not a theologian. You need a meteorologist to tell you that God's coming because what often happens is it's storms and violent winds and earthquakes and fire. Think of Job. When Job finally gets a moment with the Lord, what does he encounter? A whirlwind. Sa'ara. A a storm. This is a way of describing God coming down. The Holy Spirit isn't just like a cheerleader for God or like some manifestation of God. It's God. We could say, as the church has over and over corrected people, to say, He is God. To call the Spirit an it makes a lot of sense because it's not a masculine or feminine word in English. We call it it. We don't say him when we talk about a noun like that, right? But over and over the church has urged people, when they're talking about the Holy Spirit, to say him because it's God. So they see this and they're sitting waiting and you've got to imagine this is that power that he talked about. Now flames come apparently and descend upon their heads. That's a familiar image. Not on people's heads, but on mountains and in temples throughout Scripture. This is another way of Luke describing... How you doing? How you doing? This is another way of Luke, the author, describing God appearing and taking up residence in his temple. God has come to his temple by his Holy Spirit. And his temple, as it turns out, ain't the building on the hill in Jerusalem. It's a community of people gathered, waiting. That's where God has his mail sent. That's where the Lord takes up residence by His Holy Spirit. And what's the first thing that accompanies this dramatic, and as Luke says, Luke's the only one who uses this word, sudden, suddenly, it's very dramatic. Suddenly, what what happens next after the wind and the loud noises and the crowd gathering is these Galilean folks 
who are more, I identify somewhat with the Galileans because I'm from backwater Wisconsin. It is not the intersection of culture and the arts or something like that. Have you been to Wisconsin? Uh, there, I made my point. <laughs> Galilee is something like that. These aren't folks who have gone and gotten degrees in different dialects of Aramaic or different languages that are spoken in the known world. They're normal folks who didn't go to college, right? Yet God opts for them. Well, by the way, there's a thought there that we should hold on to. That God opts for them, not the business folks on Wall Street or Madison Avenue or in Hollywood, or the company runners, but they're normal folks. That God takes hold of them, and they begin to speak in other languages. And the crowd gathered, and this is important. Luke is really telling a, a story here. The crowd gathered represents Jewish people, who have been scattered by many years of exile and being subjugated by other powers in the world. They've been scattered. There hasn't been this grand homecoming like we hear in Isaiah or Malachi or Haggai or Zephaniah, that there'd be this moment where after the exile, God's people would come home. There hasn't been that. But here, lo and behold, on this Shavuot, on this Pentecost, we're told that there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews who have been scattered all over. And God is regathering them, just as Isaiah said God would do. I shall call to the east and the west and the north and the south, give up my sons and daughters. I'm not finished with them. And here all these Jews come. And when God appears, you do not need to learn Latin. You do not need to have a degree in Semitic languages. You will understand what God is doing because he will help you understand if you're open. Now, if you're not open, you'll hear the words of God and say, those guys are already, they've already tied one on. We just got done with prayer this morning. I just had my quiet time. And Jesus' people are hammered. Or you'll see what's going on and you'll hear. You say, God is making himself known through a people that I don't want to hear about him from. (laughs) I never thought I'd hear about him. But look at what's going on. And there's an awe. And he says it over and over. Everybody is shocked. This doesn't happen on a normal basis. You would freak if I started speaking Spanish. Like, I guarantee, I'm so grateful that we had that slide this morning in Spanish. Um, But I'm glad that I was drowned out (laughs) by y'all. God is using normal people not to make himself look secret or for special people. God's initiative. God takes the first step and he comes through these people And the first thing he does is use these people to tell everybody. This isn't a secret. God isn't mad at some people and wants to withhold. He wants his people, Jews who have been scattered everywhere, to hear. And what is it they're going to hear? They're going to hear, number one, what you're seeing is connected to Jesus Christ. And it's part of what God has always been doing. Number two, you killed him. And when we read you, he means them. It'd be really easy to say, uh, well, he means all of us when he says you. Well, not first and foremost. No. When Peter said you, with the help of lawless men, had him executed, he means y'all, Jewish people. Now, this unfortunately led to a lot of abuse for Jewish people by Christians, anti-Semitic Uh, sentiments have come from the church even just less than a hundred years ago the church was involved in abusing uh, Jewish people so I I don't mean to say anything like that but what Peter's doing is he's talking to the elect to the people of God who have rejected God's purposes for their life says this Jesus whom God accredited by showing you what God was up to, you made no space 
for what God was doing. Jesus wasn't just some like progressive prophet from the north. That was God reaching out to the world and you rejected him. And there is not another train coming. You killed him. But he's telling those who have betrayed the Lord that all that is happening is so that you might be regathered to him. He isn't just like, you killed Jesus, now you see power, get ready to fry in hell. It's not that. It's make your way back to God. Come back to Him. God is the one who takes that step. They don't even realize what they've done. And God uses these ordinary people to convince the rest of God's people that God is not finished. Something is just now beginning. Turn back. At the end of Luke, we learn that the message, the good news that these men would preach, includes repentance. If I step to y'all and say repent, how many of you are encouraged by that summons? Repent. It's a dirty word, right? None of us like to, I don't even like to read it when I see it. I'm like, ooh, could there be a more religious, icky, difficult word in the Bible than repent? Because it's a confrontation. But it's good news because the one you've betrayed is inviting you back. And repentance, by the way, I don't think is just like change your behavior. You know, we describe it in oversimplified terms. It just means turn around. Like, no, it's not just about modifying your behavior and being a good boy or girl. Repentance is about a turn toward Jesus. It's an exchanging of beliefs where you thought Jesus was an imposter to now opening yourself up to, oh my God, he might be the one. It's opening yourself up. It's changing from the allegiance of I do what I feel and what everyone else does to giving allegiance to him. Now it involves our behavior, but first and foremost, it is a change of our perception of who Jesus is. And this whole fantastic display is aimed at helping people see Jesus is the one and he's here among you and he's reaching out to you. He loves you. <laughs> His betrayers, he loves. How are you guys doing? Now, all right, there's a number of things. Let me get to what I think is the good stuff. We learn a lot about the church here. Especially in these last few lines, which is like a summary of what happened after. Right? Breaking bread in their homes. After these people turn and are baptized, they turn back to Jesus. They're baptized. They become members of this new community. And they're spending all their time together sharing everything they have. We learn a lot about what the church is right here. We also learn a lot about what the church is not from this. Let me begin with some of the things the church is not. (laughs) Uh, What we think the church is, as David Wells says, tells us how we think the church grows. I don't know if that makes sense to you. And how we think the church grows tells us a lot about what we think ministry is. Now, is the church an organization at, its, at this moment? Who's on the board of this community? What's their, you know, their tax status or something like that? Is it an institution first and foremost? Is this a description of a church Service? Did they file in, rent a space, and someone stand in front of them on a lectern and talk to them about what they need to do while they gathered and sang hymns like in a very formal way? And now we have this announcement, and now we have this announcement. Our way of understanding the church gathering, that's not what this is. It's much more rugged and raw and honest than that. The church is not, first and foremost, 
an organization or a business of some kind. Shame on us for treating her like that. We all do it. We all launch these expectations of the community which is gathered around and filled by God's Spirit. And we start to have expectations of that community which are treating it more like an organization than a Spirit-empowered and Spirit-formed group. It's not a business first and foremost. We don't have CEOs running it. When we begin to think about the church as a business or like a team in a competition or something like that, that we're out there to win the world. And we begin to appoint market strategists. There's a whole cottage industry out there of seminars and books and conferences that you can go to which teach you how to grow your church fast. Strategies for staying safe in this progressive culture. Strategy for growing your church and getting the right leadership plan. We start to think about the church in those terms. How can we grow this thing? How can we make this thing bigger? Now, is it ill-intended? Of course not. We experience the love of God in the church, but then quickly what we do is we turn it into a program and we start to abuse it. And then it fails. But do you see what's happening? As we begin to treat this community more like an organization with goals and numbers to hit and ideas that we need to get out there, we're stepping further and further away from the Holy Spirit. We're stepping more and more based on human know-how and how we can make this thing hum in each generation. And then I think God humbles the people who do that after a while. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they do not. And they get right back on the horse and keep with their ways. But the church is not to be taken. You know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when he was pastoring two little churches during the Holocaust? He said, God hates the visionary dreamer. We're like, what? Like, We love visionaries. I want a visionary leading my church. He says that because you know what visionary dreamers do? They come into the church and they say, here's where we're going, folks. We're going to lead you into the black. And we're going to, we got a strategy for winning the world. And it makes us feel safe and excited. But all of the while, we are moving away from a spirit-filled community toward our own goals and on our own energy. And if we're, if we're charitable, we'll tip our hat to God in this, when we're in this frame of mind. And I'm talking about me, not y'all. More than anything, I'm in the ministry. But what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll pray to God, almost like God become the fuel in our engine for our mission. God become our jetpack so we can win the world. Not really listening or paying attention to what God might actually be summoning the community to. We're already sure of what God wants. He wants us to be big. He wants us to win the world. He wants us to evangelize the nations before 1996. He wants us to to take over. Of course God wants that. God help us do that. But that's not what you see here. Agenda-driven community. You don't see any of that. You see a community who is still shaking from the fact that they found out they've been rejecting God. And they're gathering in prayer and in worship. And their allegiance to Jesus, that's the glue. That's the thing that forms this community. The Holy Spirit is the thing drawing them together. Because the attention is being paid by the believers To the Lord, not to the church. Now, I know that's a fine line I'm walking here, and I know how many of you are wondering how long I get to keep my job and talk like this. (laughs) But we can do this where we turn toward the church, away from God. There's a word for this. It's not very common, but it's ecclesiolatry. That is church worship. We worship the church. We become, when we have our goals and we're doing great, or if we're doing poor, it doesn't matter, but we can start to become self-obsessed. We block out the sun with our own image 
and our own fears. And when you're self-obsessed, when you're idolatrous, when you're worshiping something that is not God, you panic. You're anxious. You're afraid. Because you're not sure if it's working. You're not sure if it's going in the right direction. But if attention and worship was paid to the Lord, those things are not present in the Christian community. A culture of anxiety and doubt and wonder and and fear about the encroaching progressive culture or political landscape out there. The church doesn't live in constant anxiety and have plans to combat against it because our attention is to what God is up to among us by His Spirit. But this demands that the church be humble and on her knees in prayer rather than in the boardroom sketching out a war plan. But we learn from this here. These brothers and sisters... No one is challenging them to gather. They're gathering because of their Lord. And it's a challenge for us as the people of God in this society to focus on worship of God. And I don't mean just like singing songs. I mean that. But I mean a community which is oriented toward how might we honor and praise and thank our God together when we gather in our formal Sunday gatherings, but from home to home. How we talk about the church indicates what we think about God. I've learned this for myself. I'm on the other negative side with the church, by the way. I can get focused on the church and just become really negative. But that's because I'm looking too much at the church with the wrong lens. So we learn a lot about what the church is. Well, it is not. But what is it then? Spirit-filled community paying all of its attention to the Lord. What does it say at the last line there? And who? And the Lord added to their number every day. The Lord. Do you ever think about that? That God is the one who takes responsibility Not just for the church, but for the nations. Those of us who are outside God's plan. He's adding and growing. And as they worship Him and make themselves open to Him, He uses them. Like we saw on Tuesday night at the rescue mission. It's uncomfortable and weird for us. But when we open ourselves up, God begins to use. God begins to use us. The church is this community that's not worried about the latest fad and whether or not this or that, but it's a community who's giving her allegiance and loyalty and worship to Jesus Christ. So our sermons must reflect that. Our sermons must be about the bountiful goodness and abiding mercy of God rather than where we need to go next all of the time. From time to time, a preacher can throw us a bone about where we're going, but on the whole, our diet needs to be Jesus Christ. And what we read about in the Gospel, not about us. There needs to be talk about us. Don't get me wrong, I'm overcorrecting here. You know that, right? But we learn a lot about God as well. We learn, we learn a lot about God from this community and from this story. God desires fellowship with those who have betrayed Him. Like, need we say more? Remember a few Sundays ago when I talked about how Peter was sort of restored fellowship with Jesus? Remember how timid he was? Remember all he went through when he betrayed Jesus? Well, now here he is 50 days later or so, standing up in front of all of his fellow countrymen, and he's preaching about how they need to turn back. You think he's full of arrogance? You think he's being judgmental of these people? He's, he's rendering a judgment, but you think he's being judgmental? No. Because he knows what it means to be forgiven. 
He knows what it means to experience mercy. So he finds himself able to be used by God to just speak God's words. We learn a lot about what it's like when God's among us from this, this, this passage. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit or to be a community of the Holy Spirit? It's about us, not me or you. Whatever the Holy Spirit is, it's about us. And what do we see the Holy Spirit doing in this passage? Not giving people a deeper spirituality, though I think that happens, but giving them the ability to be witnesses to God's love. What's the Spirit do if we listen to God? If we keep in step with the Spirit, what's the point? It allows us to be witnesses. Witnesses are not peddlers of packages of truths. Witnesses are those who have experienced something and they're saying, you got to see what I saw. you got to see how much God loves you. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will cause in the next following chapters for this community who's rooted in the Holy Spirit, you know what they find power to do coming up in a few chapters? Suffer. They find the ability to be suffered, jailed, some of them executed, yet they remain in prayer. They remain faithful. That's all the work of God's Spirit. The Spirit of God isn't about some like extracurricular, like fanatical, like uh, uh, private experience. Those things grow out of being a part of God's community. But the Spirit is about people formed by and empowered to be, uh, to, to fulfill God's will. Does that make sense? It's like less fantastic and far greater than we ever imagined to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I think this is just to scratch the surface of all that's happening at Pentecost. We come to this day every year as Christians, and we, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that it's a normal part of the church's life, because it reminds us to be people who are giving our attention to Jesus. And as we're doing that, we find ourselves deep in community. And every church in the Western world, well, every church in the world, but in the Western world, in the United States especially, we've been through a lot. <laughs> and a lot of churches are shrinking. How many, of that, how many of you that scares you? When you hear about people leaving the church left and right, getting rid of Christianity, overturning, like deconstructing their faith. I found a podcast that taught me I don't need to be a Christian anymore. There's all of that happening. And it can grip us with anxiety. What, what, what do you do? What do churches do today? Get a better leader? You, you can exchange a different leader for Scott or for me or who forever else are still going to just be a person. What the church, I think, is summoned to in this moment is what we see is the church's identity anyways. Gathering, sharing, worshiping. Gathering, sharing. Worshipping, repeat, over and over, publicly, privately. Not just getting people to come to our services. Do that if you want. But it's for us to be the people of God, visibly, tangibly, to be able to share about it. Say, here's what my community does. But that takes all of the community to devote themselves back to God. My hunch is... When you find the people who give themselves to God like that, the storms around us in our society start to become less and less intimidating because we're paying less and less attention to them. And I also have a hunch that what we read here, that God adds to that number, I also think that happens in strange ways. Maybe not in the ways we always think. But okay, I've preached at you uh, and not to you enough. Let's take the Lord's Supper together. This is the, one of the greatest things we all do. 
as Christians. This is like home base for us. We don't all know each other perfectly well. We don't know the rest of the every Christian. We don't know every Christian. But when we take this meal, we are doing something that tells us who we are. We are a family nourished by the Lord. I, me and Eli were talking yesterday about the Lord's Supper. You know, some communities take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Some communities take the Lord's Supper every Sunday and every Wednesday. Some communities take it every quarter. Some, like, take it once a year. But I I like that we do this at least once a week. Because we would starve if we didn't. We take this meal, we eat this meal, because it reminds us that we as a people are nourished and energized by the presence of God. I don't know if the bread becomes Jesus or the juice becomes his blood. I don't I don't see that. But I also know it's not just a symbol or just snack time now. That this moment we acknowledge and participate together in a nourishment. The only source of energy we could ever hope to have comes from Jesus Christ. And this meal puts us in touch with that. That's what they were doing, breaking bread in their homes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this cup, this this bread. We thank you for the true food that it is. And we pray, God, as we take and eat and take and drink, you would lead us closer to you that you would fill us and strengthen our faith and empower us, God, all the more to come to you, to come together. I pray, Lord, that as we seek you out, that you would fill us with the wonder and awe that we read about in these brothers and sisters in Acts. I pray, God, that we could become... uh, in increasing measure, people formed by the bread and the cup, people who are devoted and open. Thank you for the church, God. Thank you that that we have this incredible community, that we have this, uh, this light to be a part of the light, to be a part of the saved, redeemed, uh, called community. It's such a joy, God. Help us to give witness to your goodness, God. Thank you for your son, for his body and blood. It's in his name. Amen.